My purpose in doing this podcast is to offer hope, to hang it out there like a succession of green lights or an Alanis Morissette song popping up randomly during a red one. I'm wired to care for people. In my earlier years, I got a lot of my self-worth and confidence from caring for others. You can imagine that if my self-worth was based on the health of someone else, then my own sense of self-worth would be a little shaky. Most of us have taken on the role of caregiver at some point in our lives, some more, some less. Whether by choice, career path, or life circumstances, we end up taking care of others in some capacity or another. If you find yourself being a little needy for approval, then I encourage you to examine the whys. Nobody's self-worth should be dependent on anyone else. But for caregivers in general, here are some guidelines that I follow. Number one is boundaries. Establish boundaries. Put on your own oxygen mask before you help anyone else, otherwise you will seriously die. No, seriously. You'll get some weird virus in your heart or an autoimmune disorder like psoriasis and it'll get infected and you'll be so the fuck worn out that your body will just be like, I'm done. Number two, do not take anything personally. As soon as you bring it into your own mind and body, then it sets up camp there and then all of a sudden you're sick too. This isn't a free pass to be a cold bitch, but simply a warning to stay as emotionally healthy and mature as possible and if you need help, then go get it. Which brings me to number three, don't try and be a hero. You're already a hero because you're there. It's not your responsibility to save anyone. You're only responsible for yourself. And if you feel like your own self needs help, then go get it. Number four, be human. At your healthiest self, you're gonna sound like a therapist to the person you're helping and it gets a bit nauseating. Feel free to throw fit. Eat four liters of ice cream, take your clothes off in public, chain smoke a pack of cigs and puke into the dead planter on your balcony, and then get up, brush yourself off, pop a piece of gum and get back into the game. I was born in Calgary, Alberta in Canada on January 7th, 1978, but our family only lived there for a short time. My dad is a recovering alcoholic, but spent the first 10 years of my life in the throes of his addiction. So he would feel remorse, move cities and countries for a fresh start, Relapse, rinse, repeat. I spent my preschool years in Los Angeles, California before we moved back up to the lower mainland in BC. Most of my formative years were spent in the evangelical church and on the soccer field. I went to a Christian private school and received my undergrad from a local Christian university. I married Jason, my high school sweetheart at 21, and we had our first child, Jake, when we were 22. Freddie was born two years later then I had a miscarriage, and then Katie was born three years after Freddie. Jason and I got miserable, spent a zillion dollars on therapy, mostly for me, and divorced in 2010. I met Andrew and his two children in 2011, merged families, and became pregnant with Callum in 2013. Andrew and I were married in 2015, and then had Jesse in 2017. We have a combined total of seven children. I played my last soccer game and ran my first marathon in October 1998, and I haven't looked back. The night before a race, I will lay out my fiercest singlet, the sports bra that doesn't chafe, the shorts that have carried me through the toughest workouts, the shoes I paid too much for, and my lucky socks. I put my very best into preparing for this one event, and yet the irony of the marathon is that it doesn't care. 
it does what it wants with me. It bleeds through my socks, trips me up in my shoes, whips my singlet with demoralizing wind, not because it loves to hurt me, but because I let it make me stronger. I forget that I don't put the best version of myself on the start line. I find her at the finish. But what would we line up if we had to put the best version of ourselves forward? What are we most proud of? What gives us strength? Attributes like kindness? What makes us feel most comfortable? And how have we evolved over the years into this best version of ourselves? What kind of person did we start out as? And how many of us would admit that adversity has in fact made us a better version of that person? I often wonder why we're born with things like an appendix, wisdom teeth, foreskin, moles, and gallbladders, if all that ends up happening is that we get them yanked, snipped, and cut out. Or maybe these lovely little items are indeed planted in our vessels for a purpose of some sort, to serve a greater good. I have my wisdom teeth, but holy sweet mother of Farley, they're huge. If God wanted me to masticate spinach and alfalfa all bloody day long, he certainly gave me the tools. It takes me 45 minutes to brush those beasts. My parents, because they care about whether or not I would fit into society, footed my orthodontic bill when I was a tween because A, I looked like Nancy Kerrigan got the baseball bat in the face, not the shins, and B, I really wanted braces, or so I thought. I had braces for a solid 800 years. At one point, I had my 12-year-old molars removed to make room for my wisdom teeth. Lucky me. I swear my wisdom teeth each have seven corners. We are all born with, or developed very early on, stuff that seemingly has no purpose. Maybe we have a huge amount of pride or obsessive-compulsive tendencies. Or maybe we're overly sensitive, crumpling under the smallest pressures. What are we supposed to do with these characteristics? Do we always have to yank them? I'd like to think not, but maybe that's just the hippie in me. I think pride creates hard workers. I think obsessive compulsive tendencies give birth to people who are goal-oriented and driven. And I think we need overly sensitive people to balance out the asshole factors of the prideful and obsessive compulsive people. What do we end up with? Balance. Our lives become surrounded with people of all types, from all walks of life, each giving a piece of themselves for the sake of life and love. Some of us are gay. Some of us have our gallbladders. Some of us are meat-eating conquerors. Some of us are vegans. But we all deserve to wear our crowns. There's no need to take them away, if we can use our teeth for wisdom. Our stories begin in our family of origin the foundation laid for us before we could even approve of the construction. We merely look up, think, oh shit, and then we adapt to our surroundings. I wish I could say that some of us get the privilege of being born into mansions, golden streets and everlasting Wi-Fi, but that's just not the case. Not because we're not loved, but because we are not underestimated. My surroundings were full of love. Far from perfect though, thank goodness. The gaps of imperfection gave root to growth I would have otherwise never known. I love my mom. When I was a kid, I'd tiptoe into my parents' room and I'd tap, tap, tap my mom on her left shoulder, my heart beating in my throat and she'd stir. Groggy, she would open her eyes and gently ask me what I needed. You, I'd whisper, I can't sleep. 
Our feet would pitter-patter across the hall into my room, where I'd climb into bed beside my cat Harley, and I'd lie on my stomach with my face turned toward the edge of the bed where my mum would sit. She'd take a tissue and lightly stroke it across my forehead, and while my body began to relax, my mind fought back with a worry that she'd stop. Back and forth, back and forth the tissue would go. Back and forth, back and forth the tug of war between peace and worry swayed in my body until eventually love would win and sleep came. I love my dad. The things about him that pissed me off for so many years were the very things I would see in my own reflection. I wanted to forgive him, but it never worked until I first forgave myself. Now all I see is his gentle eyes, his pride for me, the way he holds his chest with his crossed arms, his right one a touch weaker from his stroke as he throws his head back and laughs gregariously at his own jokes, like his daughter, like father. And it took me many years to be proud of that, but now my love for that man is so huge that I swear it makes up for lost time the way a warm spring breeze makes us forget the frigidity of winter. I'd be full of shit if I told you that they set a great example of a healthy marriage, but I'll promise you this, that when they read that statement I just made, they're strong enough to admit it and strong enough to love through it. Love doesn't always feel good. Love is messy. Sometimes love is downright ugly, but it's woven through the fabric of a marriage that lasts this long. Tiptoe, heart beating in my throat, back and forth, back and forth, gentle eyes, crossed arms, spring breeze. My mother is a beauty. She's one of those magnificent-looking women who'd be mistaken as a celebrity if one were to see her walking down the street. But for some reason, she has always pressured herself to lose weight, and so she's always been on some sort of diet. At one point, I recall her signing up for a program that delivered pre-packaged, pre-portioned food right to our front door. For the convenience of having slimmer waistlines, one merely needed to hand over one's digestive tract as a ransom. Diet food caused wicked gas. One night, I guessed unbeknownst to my sweet, beautiful mother, she passed wind in her sleep and woke my dad with the smell. Except my dad, delirious with sleep, had mistaken it for an actual natural gas leak. He shook my mom awake and shouted, Natural gas, baby! There's a natural gas leak somewhere! And so began our forever long family joke. Whenever we smell something stinky, we exclaim, It's natural gas, baby! We all pass wind in our sleep, but if our partner lets one go and it smells, it wakes us up. Because it's not one of our own. It often takes someone else to fart, before I even acknowledge the fact that farts actually smell bad. All of my bad habits, my mistakes, and complete life fuck-ups are often overlooked until I see them in someone else. And then all of a sudden it stinks, and all of a sudden I'm like, oh wow, I need to stop doing that. Boom, just like that. I can pass gas in my sleep for years, but once someone else wakes me up with the smell, it becomes an emergency. 
I grew up in the church, and from time to time, people would give their testimony. The term testimony is a Christianese term for life story. Christianese is a fancy language spoken by Christians, including but not limited to the terms blessings and born again. When Christians give their testimonies, more often than not, they go like this. I grew up in a Christian home, but then I backslid. Christianese for I smoked a cigarette and littered my McDonald's napkin. In my teen years, but then I gave it all up for the glory of God. Christianese for as long as God doesn't ask me to stop masturbating, I won't smoke or litter ever again. I've heard many people give amazing stories of their lives, in church and not, that have rocked my world. It's truly incredible how many people have horror stories and how their faith has helped them not only live through it all, but live well. I love hearing those stories because they inspire me and they inspire me because they are real, tangible, applicable. An imbecile can shit the bed, but it's what we do with the mess after that makes all the difference. It takes guts to get back up, clean the mess, and move forward. When people share their stories with me about how they messed up, how the pain felt, and how they are moving forward, I get humbled and feel honored that they trust me with their vulnerability. That's what life is about, right? Vulnerability, trust, making mistakes, and cleaning up the mess together. Arm in arm, connected by the bridges of our imperfect humanness and the tight ropes of faith. Sharing our hearts, our testimonies, our stories. Amen. The first time I took a CPR course was in high school. I can't remember why we had to do it, but I remember being snobby about having to breathe into a mannequin's mouth, pressured to do all I could to save a plastic torso from the world hereafter. At 16, I barely cared about anyone besides myself, and the fake choking and drowning germ magnet was no exception. I rolled my eyes, breathed new life and a new mutation of the latest flu bug into the plastic mouth on the floor at my feet, and passed the course. Thankfully, the only time I've ever needed to use any knowledge from that course was when Katie was about a year old. She was perched in her high chair, chewing on a piece of meat from dinner when it suddenly became lodged in her throat. Not before long, the food got loose and she proceeded to throw up her entire meal all over the floor at the dinner table. There's something that stuck with me from that CPR course, though, after all these years, and that's the fact that when a person is choking, their first instinct is to get up from the table and isolate themselves. And that we as observers should never let them wander off alone because it's in these moments that they often choke to death. And what I've also noticed is that when people suffer, like when we are emotionally hurting, we do the exact same thing as the choker at the dinner table. We go off on our own, work at the hurt that is lodged in our hearts until we can breathe freely enough to function, and then we return to society. But you know what? It's a good idea for us to not wander off too far, just in case we have a hard time breathing on our own. We don't need to be superheroes all the time. Sometimes we need a little extra oxygen to help dislodge the slice of life that's strangling us. And that's a lifesaver too.